Let's let's turn to the book of Hebrews together. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. I did give actually a lot of very serious thought to finishing the chapter and Justin and I met for coffee on Friday and he persuaded me not to, so if I'm subdividing too much, you can, you can blame him. I'm actually really content with this. There, there are a couple of passages in the, in the scriptures that, that focus on the nature of the word of God, the nature of the scriptures and the authority of them and the truth of them and the power. Psalm 19 is one, Psalm 119 as well. Um, certainly 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5 does, but Hebrews 4.12 is one of the first memory verses I ever learned as a, as a young Christian. 1978, when I became a Christian, I managed to find a, a Christian bookstore in Long Beach, California. Th- this is back when Christian bookstores actually had <coughs> Christian books and Bibles and commentaries and study guides, and, and they had a set of cards that were just a little bit smaller than a business card published by the Navigators, Navigator Memory Cards. And the very first verse that came up was uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And uh, by God's design, by God's grace and providence, I've had a love and regard for the the scriptures since really the day that I got saved and saw them as the the truth of God revealed, not just words about God, but the the word of God that's only been strengthened in my my seminary years and in my the the years that I've spent preaching the scripture. And so we're going to look at verses 11 through 13 this morning. We'll read that and then I'll pray. Therefore, let us be diligent diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word. Help us to understand this morning. Grant us faith. Give us faith. Give us courage and confidence in what you have said so that we may stand on firmer ground than ever before. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We've been in Hebrews for a few weeks. Uh, starting in Hebrews chapter 2, we, we began getting to the warnings. There's five passages in Hebrews that have warnings against falling away. That's because the book of Hebrews is written to, uh, was originally written to Jews who had made a profession of faith in Jesus and were being tempted to go back to the temple and all of its sacrifices and all of its rituals. Uh, many of the people who had done that, who had put their faith in Christ, had truly become Christians. But they're facing persecution. We see that later on. There's, there's comfort in the face of that. They were tired. Um, and 
for, for any of you who may have come out of, out of other religious systems into Christ, you know that eventually there's going to be a pull back to what you were raised with, back to what's familiar. Um, we just have a tendency to want what we know, especially when times are hard. And of course, others who are, are receiving this letter for the first time are Jews. They've had interest in Christ. They've they've learned about Him. They've they've begun to uh, they've begun to gather with Christians and and hear the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of his apostles, but they've never committed themselves to the Lord. They, they're kind of trying to, to walk a middle line, straddle the fence. And both sides are being warned uh, through the, the passages that we've seen in, in chapter 3, especially in the first half of chapter 4, that just like the Jews in the wilderness failed to enter because of their unbelief, even though they had already been delivered out of Egypt, uh, genuine salvation, true salvation, requires consistent, ongoing faith and ongoing devotion to the Lord. The last verse of, of uh, chapter 3, verse 19, says, So we see that they, this is the Israelites in the wilderness, were not able to enter because of unbelief. And the vast majority of them died in the wilderness because of unbelief. There were others who died as punishment for sin. And uh, Moses and Aaron um, God had his own purposes for holding them short. Miriam died. Um, the, the whole group was really a mess. There are just two men who came out of Egypt as, as, uh, at, at over the age of 20 and made it into the promised land, and that's Joshua and Caleb. So we have this, this connecting point in verse 11 between all of that warning and now what do we do as Christians? We've had all of the example. You can certainly go through uh, the majority of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 and gain a lot. But verse 11 centers down and hammers down the application. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That is to be saved. He's comparing, he's comparing the, Israel's rest in the promised land with salvation in Christ. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, to be saved, so that no one will fall through following the same pattern of disobedience as the Jews in the wilderness. And that pattern of disobedience was willful unbelief, not the the kinds of inevitable doubts all of us face that we talked about last week. So as we look at that, I'm not going to go into their history. We've done that. I'm not going to go into all of the other things about today, if you hear his voice. We've already done that. I just want to focus in on the, the, the obvious question or questions that come out of verse 11. When we think about, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience, the obvious question is going to be, am I being diligent? Am I being diligent? We've actually got three let us statements there in verse uh, in these, in these uh, five verses or six verses through the end of the chapter. Verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And verse 16, let us draw near with confidence. So we've got these applications. How are we in terms of our diligence? Are we being diligent? Or are we at risk of falling short? That's the question that verse 11 really forces us to ask. 
And just as importantly, then, how do we know? How do we know if we're being diligent? There are so many different ideas, and people have all their theories about what the Christian life is supposed to be. You, you can't escape them anymore. The Internet allows everybody to publish. How do you know if you're being diligent? How do you know if you're at risk of falling short? He answers the question in verses 12 and 13. We don't have to make up an answer or, or, or uh, invent something. We're given the answer, and it begins with the Word of God. The Word of God is living. The Word of God is living. The Bible's not dead words. It's, it's not words that had meaning at one time but no longer have meaning today. They're just kind of, of interesting. Um, if, if, I, if I give you three words, I think almost everybody in the room could at least finish the phrase. Four score and... Okay, can you go further? On this continent. There you go. And that... And that's from... And who was Gettysburg? Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> see, the, the, they're really cool words. I remember seeing those words when, when I was very young. I've always been fascinated with Abraham Lincoln. Um, when I was still in mid-elementary school, third grade or fourth grade, I was reading Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln, and I was just fascinated. Um, and I was fascinated by all of these events and by the, the Gettysburg Address and all of that. But the Gettysburg Address is dead words. It's not four score and seven. It's 24 score and two now. It's no longer 87 years ago. It's 282 years ago. Um, he talks about our nation being brought forth, and that, that's true. Uh, and then he goes on in, in the speech to say, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived can long endure. In 1863, as Abraham Lincoln stood on the battlefield of Gettysburg a few months after the battle and dedicated a cemetery there, he didn't know how the Civil War would turn out. And that's why he said, um, testing whether any nation so conceived can long endure. The nation did endure. The Civil War did not destroy the United States of America. Um, we remained a union. We expanded. <coughs> the other thing that's interesting about the Gettysburg Address is toward the end of it then, Lincoln says, the world will little remember what we say here, but it will never forget what they did here. And yet so many people today don't know what Gettysburg is they don't know that there is a town called Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. They don't understand why Gettysburg was important in the war. And they don't understand what difference the Battle of Gettysburg on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd made. Um, but they do remember Lincoln's words because we have to memorize it in third grade or fourth grade or sixth grade or when, whenever we have to memorize it. Those words are dead words. They're, they're inspirational to us. They're historically interesting, but they don't necessarily have any effect or power over us today. That's not what the Word of God does. The Word of God is actually alive. It is vital. It is living. It is enduring. It is fresh. The spiritual ink of Scripture 
is still wet. The voice of God, which is, which is written in the pages of Scripture, continues to echo. He continues to speak. If you look back, in fact, at chapter 3 of Hebrews, in verse 7, uh, the writer goes into a lengthy quotation from David in the book of Psalms. And he says in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, well, he, he doesn't say just as the Holy Spirit said through David a thousand years ago, and we can kind of look at that and make a modern application of it. He says, no, this was written a thousand years ago, but the Holy Spirit is saying it today. That's a present tense verb says. And it's ironic that many today are clamoring to hear the voice of God, and, and yet they're ignoring the voice of God that continues to resonate in the pages of Scripture. When Jesus was tempted, when Satan came to him, we see it in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan came to him and tempted him, Jesus had all the authority necessary to say, I say to you. But he didn't. He said three times with each of those temptations, it is written. The, the man who is also fully God and who is the word of God in, in living form, who is the final revelation of God, Hebrews 1 says. Referred back to the written word. And he did that because the written scriptures that he referred to bore the exact same authority as if he had said it in that moment. And it wasn't necessary for him to say something new because he could go back to what Scripture had already said. Because once God has said a thing, it's said. It doesn't need to be repeated ad infinitum. So the Word of God is living. When Jesus had been raised from the dead, as he's uh, getting up that that Sunday morning, um, he appears to the women, he gives them instructions, and then Luke 24 tells us, he meets up with two of his disciples who are on the road heading west toward Emmaus. They're going back to Galilee. They're not going to go north through Samaria. They're not going to go east up the Jordan River Valley. They're going to go to the coastal plain and the road there. So they're, they're on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles away. Jesus joins up with them. They have a conversation. And ultimately, he proves to them that the, the Messiah had to come and die and be raised again. And he didn't do that by saying, here I am, look at me, hello, familiar guy, right? It says in those scriptures that beginning with Moses and, and the prophets, he took them through all of the scriptures concerning himself. Why not just say to them, here I am, hello, look at me, hi, nail holes, here we go, sword on the side, here. Well, there, there's at least a couple of reasons. One is he didn't want their faith to be based on an experience they had. He wanted their faith based on something far more, uh, far more rock solid than any experience, and that's Scripture. He could have done that, and then six months later or a year later, they would have looked at each other and said, are we sure that was him? Maybe it just looked like him. But they had the Scriptures to tell them. Another reason is that he wanted them eventually then to go tell others that he had died for sin and been raised from the dead. And people had to have a reason to believe that beyond, I was there, I saw him. They needed to see that the scriptures actually tell this. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, the Bible doesn't answer every question that we have. 
but it answers every question that matters. It answers every question about who God is, who we are, about life, about godliness, about righteousness, about sin. It guides us as we raise our children. It guides us as we work. It guides us in our relationships and and being citizens. It guides us in marriage, obviously. It's not going to answer every question, but it answers every question that matters. Since the Word of God is alive, it only makes sense that being alive, it's also active. This word means that it is working. It is energetic. It is... Uh, vital. It actually changes hearts and souls and minds. Scripture is not just a source of information that we use to create application. It brings about transformation. In, in Isaiah, the Lord says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I'm, I'm going to read more, but let me just point out uh, for, for those that come out of systems like Jehovah's Witnesses and others where so much emphasis is put on we have to be able to reason out and understand everything, God is just saying you can't understand. You can't reason it out. My thoughts are higher. My ways are different. My ways are higher. God has to tell us what's true. We can't reason through to what's true. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. His word is like the rain and the snow. I would kind of always, I realized that this morning and learned something every day. I would kind of always thought the word of God is the seed. No. The word of God is the rain and the snow that gives life to the seed. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. What does he mean by that? He means it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God's word never fails. It does exactly what he sends it to do. His, his word, in fact, here his word is treated as a faithful servant. It's spoken of as a faithful servant. When I send my servant to do a thing, my servant does that thing. And his word is treated as a servant. God's word never fails. It accomplishes exactly what the Lord sends it to do. So as, for instance, when Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus in John 11 and calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Immediately we see in the next verse it says, and the dead man, or the man who had died, came forth. Lazarus' resurrection wasn't based on his faith. It wasn't based on anything he brought to the party. It wasn't based on anything that he, that he did. It was based on the will of God being spoken by the Lord Jesus and life given back to Lazarus as a gift. Jesus didn't offer Lazarus life. He gave him life. <clears throat> a lot of people will say you, you can be given a gift, but you have to receive it. Yeah, in some times. But that's not what we see happening in John 11. We don't see Jesus offering Lazarus life, saying, Lazarus, I'm here. I'll raise you from the dead. You just got to say something. You just got to do something. 
Every head bowed, every eye closed, just raise your hand, Lazarus. Just slip it up. Just slip it up and I'll raise you from the dead. Lazarus is dead. There's nothing that he can do. He can't receive it, but he can be given it. And so Jesus gave him life in exactly the same way. The gospel is not offered to us by God. It's given to those that he intends to raise to life. We offer the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, we offer the gospel. I offer the gospel without charge. He's speaking about his ministry. And because none of us are in charge of who is saved, all we can do as evangelists is go to somebody and offer them the gospel. But if they receive it from us, it's because they have been given it by God. If they receive it from us, it's because they have been given it by God. The word of God is active. It does what God sends it to do. It is forceful. It is powerful. The word of God, though, is not merely living and active. Those are good things. Um, it, it actually judges. So the, this next phrase is a lengthy phrase, and we're going to break it down a little bit. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The, the point of this lengthy phrase is to say the word of God is able to judge between the thoughts of your heart and the intentions of your heart. And in order to get there, he, he uses some comparisons. He, he uses the comparison of a double-edged sword, which the, the word there is a, a weapon that's held in the hand, a single hand. It, it's dagger length. It might be 18 inches or so. I think it's the word we get machete from. It's double-edged. The word that we would use today would be scalpel. The idea is that this is a really, really, really sharp blade. And he, he, he does give soul and spirit as the first comparison and then kind of goes to joint and marrow. I think joint and marrow logically belong first. If you do this, you could Google and go look up joint and marrow um, and look at images and you'll see drawings like from a biology textbook. And they'll show the bone in, in one color and the marrow in another color and the joint in another color with nice crisp lines. Those crisp lines are not actually in your body. Your body is not made up of all those different colors. Another picture that came up this morning when I looked at it was a, a, a leg bone from a cow that had been cut in half for a biology class. And then they, they just took a picture of joint to joint and the bone, and it's just all cut in half. And I would defy anybody in this room simply looking at the picture to figure out where the joint begins and the marrow ends. They did have a picture where they, one of the requirements then was to take a scoop and scoop out the marrow, and you could see where the real soft part is in the center of the bone. But as you look at it, as you think about the transition, it's not just that you've got a, a real sharp, dark, clean line between joint and marrow. There's a transition that takes place. It's really impossible to pick the place between joint and marrow. They kind of blend together. Well, the, the word of God is like a sharp sword that can find that place. Even though we can't, it's like a sword that can do that. Then to, to advance that within our minds, he talks about soul and spirit. Now, theologians will say that the spirit is the animating life force within us. It's the breath of life God gave us. Uh, I had a, a professor 
who, who said, and, he, and I love Dr. Sosi, huge respect for this guy. Uh, just one of the nicest men I've, I've ever met in my life and smarter than anybody has a right to be. He said this like it was meaningful to us in some way. He said, well, the spirit is the life principle. I've got no idea what you mean by that, the life principle. And then, and then theologians will say the soul is the immaterial part of our personhood. So it's our will, it's our mind, it's our emotions, it's our decision-making. It kind of encompasses, in general terms, all of that. So spirit is the, the life within us. Soul is the non-physical part of our personality. But in the scripture, those words have a huge amount of overlap. So what we read, if you remember in the last couple of weeks, we've been going back and forth a little bit to Numbers 14, where the Israelites uh, refused to enter because of, of unbelief. And God says, fine, you're going to die there, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. And jo- God says about Joshua or Caleb, he gets to enter because he has a different spirit. Not a different force of life, but a different attitude, a different belief, a different devotion. So that's, that's a place where we would expect to see soul, but the scripture uses spirit. You remember Rachel, the, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, and she named him Benjamin. And Genesis 35 says that she named him as her soul was leaving her. Well, not her personality, but the life within her. That's a place where we would, we would expect to see spirit. So if you look at the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses in Scripture that have soul or spirit in them, you'll see that about, there's about 50 or 60% overlap where they're used almost interchangeably. There are times where spirit means the principle of life, the power of life itself within us, and soul means personhood. But a significant amount of time, they're interchangeable. So... The word of God is so sharp, it can not only penetrate to that division between joint and marrow, it can tell the difference between soul and spirit. Something that I've heard a lot, maybe some of you have heard this too, is somebody who will say, well, I was provoked in my spirit. What do you mean by that? How do you know it was your spirit? Well, I just know. No, I don't think you do. How do you know it was your spirit? How do you know it wasn't your soul? Why, why not your heart? Why not your will? Why not your mind? And it, it's just something that people say. They couldn't define it if they wanted to. We're not that good. But the scripture knows the difference between that. And then he uses those two, two things that are impossible for us to divide out, then to talk about the scripture's ability to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If it's hard to to figure out where joint and marrow end and are next to each other, and if it's really impossible for us to tell what part of us is soul and what part of us is spirit, it is impossible for us to understand the difference between the thoughts of our heart and the intentions of our heart. This, This week... This man in Florida sent pipe bombs to a dozen people or so. And you know that there's a difference between thinking to yourself, I wonder how you would make a pipe bomb, and I wonder how you make a pipe bomb. And we can have those same thoughts and not really understand the significance of those thoughts. And even say, 
It's just a thought. It doesn't matter. Well, the Bible says it matters. Well, it was just something I thought about doing. It's something that I wanted to do, but I never did it. But the Bible says those intentions matter and that God can tell the difference in those intentions. So in in case you think that you can understand the working of your own heart, let me just point out what the Lord says in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful, is more deceitful than all else, and and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can understand their own heart. I read this morning on CNN there, there were three events this week, uh, two of which I know you know about, the, uh, the, the pipe bombs and then the, the terrible shooting at the synagogue yesterday in Pittsburgh. And then CNN made a connection to a shooting uh, at a grocery store in Kentucky. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, a, a 51-year-old white man went to a black church The doors were locked. He couldn't get in, so he drove down the street to a Kroger grocery store, went in the store, killed one person in the the store, a black woman, I think, and then came out and killed a black man in the parking lot. And and so what's really flooding the Internet is is extremism, terrorism, white white supremacy, racism, but all of that's the easy stuff. What Jeremiah 17.9 says is we've got no idea the depths of those men's heart. They didn't even understand all of their motivations. Were they racially motivated? To some degree, sure. That's the easy thing to pick out. The harder thing is what's underneath that. What's underneath that? And, And often, we've seen this, often what you find out in the weeks to come as they investigate, for instance, the shooting in Pittsburgh, People might find out that there had been another event, another trigger point, and it wasn't really racial in the sense that it was anger at a person. The the shooting in San Bernardino, California, several years ago was originally thought to be a racially motivated thing, and then it turns out that one of the people had worked there and had been fired and was angry, and it wasn't racial at all. It just got painted that way initially. Even after we've done all of our work, we can't understand our own heart much less the heart and motivations of anybody else. But the word of God can. It's able to divide those things out. And it does that because of what we see in verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, two things, a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, in verse 12, we've got the word of God. And in verse 13, we have his sight. And it's because we can't separate the word of God from the person of God. You can separate my words from, from me. My words are not me. Uh, we really want young people today to be careful on social media because they might say something foolishly that comes back to haunt them. And they could accurately say, I, I did say that when I was 16, when I was 17. I did put that on Twitter. I did put that on Facebook. That, but that's not who I am. And the people who know them would say, yeah, that's not who they are. But when we, when we go before the Lord, the Lord always knows who we are. And his word and his nature is, is always joined up. The other thing that's really interesting is it says all things are open and laid bare to God. Him, who, him with whom we have to do is another way of saying, saying him to whom we are accountable. We have to do with him. We have to be accountable to him. Uh, being open means being stripped bare. That's the sense there. 
And being laid bare is, is really interesting. My, my first thought was that it was like high school biology where you dissect the frog and you just kind of open it up. Uh, the, the word laid bare translated uh, is a word that we get trachea from, your neck. And what it meant, it referred to what a priest did in grabbing a sacrifice's head and forcing the head back to expose the neck so that they could kill the sacrifice. And the sense here is we are utterly exposed to God and we are fully at his mercy. The word is able to judge us. I can fool you, you can fool me, but we can't. And we can even fool each other or ourselves because that's easy, but we can't fool God. Now, as we think about this, then, that's kind of heavy. Are you being diligent? God knows. You don't know. Not simply examining your heart. Are you in danger of falling away? No. You don't know that. Who knows? God knows, and the Scripture reveals it because of the power, the living, active work of the Scripture. So as you sit there kind of somber, thinking, hmm, he ends with, with, with these verses. And this is what I'm going to preach next week. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The the aim of the word of God exposing us and laying us bare is not to destroy us, but to bring us to the throne of grace over and over and over again. And when we come to the throne of grace, we always receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is no point in mercy and grace where there is no sin. If there's no sin, if there's no fallenness, there's no need for mercy and grace. There's never a, a statement in Scripture about Jesus receiving mercy from God. There's never a statement in Scripture about Jesus receiving grace from God. He didn't need it. He never sinned. He was righteous in everything that he did. But I'm not, and you're not. And so as we come to the Scriptures, and the Scripture convicts us, and the Lord does that surgical work of revealing who we actually are rather than who we think we'd like to be, He doesn't do that to destroy us. He doesn't do that because he hates us, but because he loves us and because he's showing us so that we would repent and that we would believe the gospel (coughs) and understand the greatness of our high priest. Uh, George George Whitfield was a a pastor whose preaching launched the Great Awakening in 1740. He was uh, from, uh, from Britain, came to the colonies, everybody's English around at that time, can't say he came to America, but he came to the colonies and began preaching. And his preaching ignited 
the Great Awakening, and it just absolutely exploded. He went back to England, and the Great Awakening spread there, and, and people flocked in. He preached multiple times a day. He would sometimes craft sermons riding on the back of a horse, holding a Bible in his hand as the horse just meandered his way down. He preached in churches. He preached in halls. He preached in saloons. He preached in, in meadows. He preached in courtyards. He preached wherever he could preach, and people flocked in to hear him. Many of those flocking in to hear him came because he was preaching words of hope, because he was preaching the gospel, because the Lord was really doing something in their heart. But many came simply for the entertainment value. Got nothing else to do. And everybody's flocking to see him. Let's go and and see what he's got to say. There was a group of men who did that repeatedly. They came to find they came to call themselves the Hellfire Club because they were mocking everything that he was doing. We're going to hell and we're pleased with it. We're proud of it. We're the Hellfire Club. One night, one of, one of their number, a man named Thorpe, got up and, and began to entertain the others by doing an impression of Whitfield's latest sermon. And he quoted the scripture and he prayed the prayers and he, he, he uh, mimicked Whitfield's tone and gestures and facial expressions and he even pled with them to repent and all of a sudden he was knocked back into his chair because he was stricken with conviction over his own sin a mocker took the word of god and said it out loud to mock it and was converted by that word what that means is that there is hope for sinners as Donna was praying for opportunities and for the courage and the wisdom to know what to say. We know that the power of God to save is the gospel. And it can be difficult to know exactly what to say. It can be difficult to know how to respond. But we know that when we bring the word of God to bear, It changes lives. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to to, uh, be in your word together. We ask that you would build us and nourish us and strengthen us, give us courage, give us confidence. And experientially, Lord, there is nothing like coming to the Scripture and seeing ourselves there And because of that being brought to you to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And understanding that your word never fails. And so cement that within us. Set our feet more firmly underneath us on the solid rock than ever before. Give us wisdom and kindness toward those who need to hear, but give us courage and clarity as well. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us and ask that you would be with them and glorify your name in them. And Lord, bring us back next week together. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.